So now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our storyteller extraordinaire with a wonderful message for us this morning, Reverend Dr. Patrick Cameron. Good, mo- <clears throat> Good morning. Oh, if you'd like to stand and sing with me and say a prayer, and if you'd like to stay seated, please do that. And some of you just keep dozing where you are. You know, good too. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world, and in very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear or spirit one spirit very room in this very room in this very room I invite you to know with me in this moment one life perfect life spirit's life my life your life and so once again as we choose it it chooses us and I know in this moment that the awareness, the vibration of the Most High is guiding, resourcing, and supporting each and every one of us. And I offer the highest and best of myself in exchange. The conversation that is in heaven. Vibrationally beyond the words upon the words. And so I'm just so grateful in this season of light, in this season of love, in this season of celebration. As we move into the, the diminishing amount of sunlight to the solstice and welcome the light. It is a metaphor in our own lives, and my life. And so I'm grateful to be reminded of that and to know that the darkness has its place, as does the light. For this I give thanks for the awareness, the grounding and knowing that everything is in divine right order in my experience. And that which is seeking expression by means of me has that opportunity as I continue to say yes and to move forward powerfully, beautifully, and wonderfully. And for this, I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you for sharing that prayer with me. And thank you, Jill. Wow, wherever she is, she's probably in the back, signing autographs as, we, as I speak. Yeah, it's just, what a treat. So last week I talked a bit about uh, someone showed up and said, I did all my homework, and you didn't talk about homework at the first service. So did anybody have homework they did that they'd like to pass in right now? Because you hate to give a homework assignment and not collect it, as many of you teachers know. But, but part of that, the whole idea around uh, last week I talked about this idea of elegant endings and new beginnings. And, and this is a season... In, that I think is there's a wonderful energy around this season. I mean, for many people, it's around commerce. You know, I was, I saw, I was coming out of Bonnie Dune Mall uh, empty-handed yesterday, and I saw uh, one of our 
members, and she said, are you doing all your Christmas shopping? I said, well, kind of, you know. And I was down there actually picking a book up that I was going to speak to, uh, one of the books that I was, I'm going to use it next week, and it actually came in, so I went to pick it up. But, but for me, this, it, you know, it is wonderful about the exchange, the, the gifts, but the gifts, the, the wonderful gifts that are so available to us are, are, are there's a level of, of uh, participation in that. There's a depth of opportunity for us. And I love that about our teaching. I love about what we teach because we really are about, we teach an intangible. Uh, and, and we are about this idea of the, the continued filtering of consciousness in our own way, in our own experience of life. So I wanted to share, I've been using a series of stories this month because there's some great Christmas stories around it. And Jill's song was so uh, appropriate. I didn't know what she was going to sing, but, you know, the grown-up Christmas and there's actually a story. I'm going to grab my storytelling chair over here. It's called A Kidnapped Santa Claus. And A Kidnapped Santa Claus was written by L. Frank Baum, who also wrote The Wizard of Oz. And, if, and I, I'm not going to read all of it because it's, I'll just hit on some of the highlights. But it's interesting. Here's the guy that wrote the, the Wizard of Oz, which was sort of a yearly ritual when I was a kid. You know, we all had to stop because The Wizard of Oz is on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. So we'd... We'd all huddle around the TV and watch that uh, legendary program. And so Baum wrote this, don't know what year, but he, he uh, talks about Santa Claus lived in the Laughing Valley. And so the Laughing Valley was a very joyous place. He called it laughing because everything there was happy and gay. The brooks chuckled to itself and it leaped and frolicked and, and between the green banks. The wind whistled merrily in the trees. The sunbeams danced lightly over the soft grass. And the violets and wildflowers look smilingly up from their green nest. To laugh, one needs to be happy. To be happy, one needs to be content. One of the things I think is interesting is how science is catching up with what we teach in the idea that you know, happiness really is a choice and that, it, and that you know, depending on environment and people who are around can help determine some of that happiness. Also on the other side of the valley were the daemons. And the daemons represent qualities. Now, Santa Claus really represents a quality of spirit. It represents an essence, as do the daemons. And the daemons comes from the Greek mythology, but it really represents a quality. So the daemons lived in the mountain caves, and they grew to hate Santa Claus very much, and all for the simple reason that he made children happy. The cave of the daemons are five in number. A broad pathway leads up to the first cave, which is finely arched cavern at the foot of the mountain. And each cave is occupied by a daemon. The first one is the daemon of selfishness. The second one is the daemon of envy. The third cave is the daemon of hatred. The fourth is the daemon of malice. And then there's a small pathway that they all lead to, which is the, the, uh, which is the fifth cave. And it is called the daemon of repentance. And as the rocky floors of the passage are well worn by the tracks of p- passing feet... I judge that many wanderers in the cave of the daemons have escaped through the tunnels to the abode of the daemon of repentance. Now last week, one of the reasons I thought that was such a good fit, last week I talked about this idea that we're at a point in time when it's, uh, it's uh, giving birth, it's, it's uh, hospicing what wants to die, and it is being the midwife to what wants to be born in our experience. In order to do that, and why it's important is that we have to create space in our own awareness and our own consciousness, and that's the shift in perception. And so I talked about this idea of regret, blame, and shame. It's very easy to, to carry those things with us. But those are indicators of where we are, which can lead to the pathway to envy and jealousy. And so I found this, this story, and I thought it very interesting, because it's really about the, our, our lower nature. 
All of these demons represent our lower nature, what the Hindus talk about. And so the demon of repentance is said to be a pleasant sort of fellow who gladly opens for one a little door, admitting you into fresh air and sunshine. So the pathway gets narrower, as Baum writes about it, but it opens the doorway, and all it takes is a crack. So the demon of selfishness says, I'm getting really lonesome, for Santa Claus distributes so many pretty Christmas gifts to all the children, and they become happy and generous through his example, and they keep away from my cave. I'm having the same trouble, rejoined the demon of envy. The little ones seem quite content with Santa Claus, and there are few indeed, and I, have, I can coax to become envious. And that makes it bad for me, declared the demon of hatred, for if no children pass the cave of selfishness and envy, none can get to my cavern, which is the hatred. Or to mine, added the demon of malice. For my part, said the demon of repentance, it is easily seen that if children do not visit your caves, they have no need to visit mine, so that I am quite as neglected as you are. And all because of this person they call Santa Claus, exclaimed the demon of envy. He is simply ruining our business and something must be done. So I'm going to fast forward ahead because it's a long story. I'll just give you the the cliff notes today. But anyway, so the daemon of hatred and envy and malice uh, all go and they try to convince Santa Claus that what he's doing isn't right. You're messing this up, Santa. Uh, the, The daemon of selfishness says, these toys are wonderfully bright and pretty. Why don't you just keep them for yourself? It's a pity you give them to those noisy boys and fretful girls who break and destroy them so quickly. Nonsense, cried the old gray beard, his bright eyes twinkling merrily as he turned toward the temptation, tempting Damon. The boys and girls are never so noisy and fretful after receiving my presence, and if I can make them happy for one day in the year, I am quite content. So Santa's representing the consciousness of unconditional generosity, which is, that, which is really a, an expression of spirit. And of course, one of the lower natures says, why are you giving all this stuff away? Keep it for yourself, because there's not enough. So the daemon went back to the others who awaited him in their caves, and he said, I have failed, for Santa Claus is not at all selfish. The following day, the daemon of envy visited Santa Claus. And envy, we talked about last week, is wishing things were different. And I said, one of the great things about envy is honoring it, because wishing something were different is is a clue that the divine discontent is alive in our lives and we long for a different experience. So it's not a bad thing, but it's really about taking taking the, the indicators and the signposts in our lives and saying, you know what, this isn't working for me. There's something, there's something incongruent in my life. And so it's not an opportunity to stay stuck there. It's an opportunity to, to welcome the new idea, the new inspiration, the new opportunity to walk through the pathway. But it requires us to elevate our consciousness, and that's a vibrational, that's an energetic thing. So, as I, so the following day, the daemon of envy visited Santa Claus, and he said, The toy shops are full of playthings, quite as pretty as those you are making. What a shame it is that they should interfere with your business. So here's the consciousness of not enough. Competition. Competition. They make toys by machinery much quicker than you can make them by hand, and they sell them for money while you get nothing for all your work. But Santa Claus refused to be envious of the toy shops. I can supply the little ones but once a year on Christmas Eve, he answered. And for the children, for the children are many, and I am but one. And as my work is out of love and kindness, I would be ashamed to receive money for my little gifts. But throughout all the year, the children must be amused in some way, and so the toy shops are able to bring much happiness to my little friends. I like the toy shops, and I'm glad to see them prosper. So it's not about either or. It's about both and. Yeah, we, I do this once a year. I do it out of... And he's on purpose. He understands his purpose, which is a great example for all of us, myself included. What is the highest principle? What is the sacred vow? What is the high holy agreement that we make with ourselves? 
that we can carry forward because it, as it's obvious Santa Claus doesn't get deterred at all he just stays on purpose no I'm just there to give and those toy shops they have a purpose everything to everything there is a season in spite of the second rebuff the daemon of hatred thought he should try to influence Santa so the next day he entered the busy workshop and he said good morning Santa I have bad news for you then run away like a good fellow said Santa Claus bad news is something you should be kept secret and never told there's an idea huh how many of us would, we wouldn't have anything to talk about, would we? <laughs> Let me tell you this one. Run away like a good fellow. You cannot escape this, however, declared the daemon, for in the world there are good many who do not believe in Santa Claus. And these are, you are bound to hate bitterly since they have so wronged you. Stuff and rubbish, cried Santa. And there are others who resent your making children happy and who sneer at you and call you a foolish old rattlepate. You are quite right to hate such base slanderers and you ought to be revenged upon them for the evil words and so Santa looked up from his workbench and he said I don't hate him such people do me no real harm but merely render themselves and their children unhappy isn't that true you know when we, we carry the bitterness with it all we're doing is it's just like holding a hot rock hoping the other person's going to fall over and die poor things I'd rather help them any day than injure them and once again so he's on purpose Indeed, the demons could not tempt old Santa Claus in any way, and on the contrary, he was shrewd enough to see he had the wisdom, he had the spiritual wisdom, shrewd enough to see that their object in visiting him was to make mischief and trouble, and his cheery laughter disconcerted the evil ones and showed to them the folly of such an undertaking, and so they abandoned honeyed words and determined to use force. So now they had to get serious with this guy because they wasn't responding to this. They couldn't convince him. And so there's a, there's a whole dissertation here about what happens in the thought process. But Santa gets ready to go out on Christmas Eve with all his toys. He's got everything packaged, and he's up in his sleigh, and he's taken off. And all of a sudden, this rope appears out of nowhere. And it's shot through the moonlight, and a big noose that was at the end of it settled over his arms and body of Santa Claus and drew tight. And before he could resist or even cry out, he was jerked from the seat of the sleigh and tumbled head foremost into a snowbank, while the reindeer rushed onward with a load of toys and carried it quickly out of sight and sound. And so he didn't know what happened. It never happened before. But what they didn't know, and the daemons, so the daemons were celebrating. They were rubbing their hands together with cruel glee. What will the children do now? How will they cry and scold and storm when they find there are no toys in their stockings and no gifts on their Christmas trees? And what a lot of punishment they will receive from their parents and how they will flock to our caves of selfishness and envy and hatred and malice. We have done a mighty clever thing, we daemons of the caves. Now it's... So chanced that on this Christmas Eve, the good Santa Claus had taken with him in his sleigh Neuter the Ryle, you remember him, Neuter the Ryle, Peter the Nook, Kilter and Pixie, and a small fairy named Whisk, his four favorite assistants. And these little people he had often found very useful in helping him to distribute his gifts to the children. And when their master was so suddenly dragged from the sleigh, they were all snugly tucked underneath the seat where the sharp wind could not reach them. So they figured out Santa wasn't there anymore. They didn't know what to do. They, thought, they talked about going back, and finally they said, you know what, we've got to get these. Wherever Santa went, Santa went, we've got to get these, these toys out. And so they did. They had a couple of mistakes. They missed a couple. Mamie, Mamie Brown, who wanted a doll, got a drum instead, and a drum is of no use to a girl who loves dolls. And Charles Smith, who delighted to romp and play outdoors and who wanted a new pair of rubber boots to keep his feet dry, received a sewing box filled with colored worsted and threads and needles, which made him so provoked that he thoughtlessly called our dear old Santa Claus a fraud. But other than that, they did pretty good. So anyway, Santa's now been taken by the demons and he's locked in the cave. 
and they've got the demon of malice is guarding him. And he says, the children are waking up, Santa. They're waking up to find their stockings empty. Ho, ho, how will they quarrel and wail and stamp their feet in anger? Our caves will be full today, old Santa. Our caves are sure to be full. But to this, as to other like taunts, Santa Claus answered nothing. He was much grieved by his capture, it is true, but his courage did not forsake him. And finding that the prisoner would not reply to his jeers, the daemon of malice presently went away. Now, isn't this true about that whole... See, and it's all a metaphor for our consciousness, but when those ideas start to show up in our consciousness, the judgment, the self-criticism, that, that, uh, the, the critical parent, do we respond to or do we do not engage it? Our caves will be full today, Santa. But he didn't respond. The last personage was not so dis- dis- the last person to come in was not so disagreeable as the others. He was the daemon of repentance. He had a gentle and refined feature, and his voice was soft and pleasant in tone. My brother Damons do not trust me overmuch, he said, as he entered the cavern, but this is morning now, and the mischief is done. You cannot visit the children again for another year. That is true, answered Santa Claus almost cheerfully. Christmas Eve is past, and for the first time in centuries, I have not visited my children. The little ones will be greatly disappointed, murmured the daemon of repentance almost regretfully, but that cannot be helped now. Their grief is likely to make the children selfish and envious and hateful, and if they come to the cave of the daemons today, I shall get a chance to lead them to the cave of repentance. Do you never repent yourself, asked Santa Claus curiously. Oh, yes, indeed, answered the daemon. I am even now repenting that I assisted in your capture. Of course, it is too late to remedy that evil that has been done, but repentance, you know, can come only after evil thought or deed. For in the beginning, there is nothing to repent of. So I understand, said Santa Claus. Those who avoid evil never need visit your cave. As a rule, that's true, said the daemon. Yet you, who have done no evil, are about to visit my cave at once. For to prove that I sincerely regret my share in your capture, I'm going to permit you to escape. The speech greatly surprised Santa Claus until he reflected that it was just what he might expect of the daemon of repentance. The fellow at once busied himself untying the knots that bound Santa Claus and unlocked the chains that fastened him to the wall. And then he led the way through a long tunnel until they both emerged in the cave of repentance. I hope you'll forgive me, said the daemon pleadingly. I am not really a bad person, you know, and I believe I've accomplished a great deal of good in the world. With this, he opened a, black, a back door and let the flood of sunshine and Santa Claus sniffed the fresh air gratefully. I bear no bal- malice, he said to the daemon in a gentle voice, and I'm sure the world will be a dreary place without you, so good morning and a Merry Christmas to you. And with these words, Santa Claus stepped out to greet the bright morning, and a moment later, he was trudging home, whistling softly to himself on his way to Laughing Valley. And so as he's marching home, all of the, the fairies and the, the nymphs and all the little people are coming his way to save him because they figured out what happened to Santa. And he told them it's all good. There's a wonderful army led by Whisk, Peter, Neuter, and Kilter. And they'd assembled everybody to go rescue Santa Claus. And then it talks about, there's a few other pages about the, the conversations after that. But the, one of the, the great values in this story is it represents all those lower qualities, as I mentioned. Those, those, those ideas, and last week we talked about putting things down, elegant endings. What, what wants to be put down so that I can give birth to this new idea, this new possibility? And it is, if we look through all of mythology, it's always about, and see, we, we all... 
if it's all good and it's all God, you know, you'll hear us say that, and it's all God. And there's a lot of things that happen in the world that don't look good. And we've had experience, all of us have had disappointments and experiences in our lives. But without the disappointment, without the, the, the sort of the car or the train going off the track a bit, what happens when we go into the darkness is we either collapse into it and we stay stuck, or we develop the skills and the, the spiritual maturity and the wisdom and the, and the perceptions that allow us to move out of it. And so here's these four daemons, the hatred, the envy, the malice, and, and there's one more I know, and, and there's repentance. And the, the pathway in the story to repentance is this small, narrow pathway. But going into the caves, it's, it's pretty broad. Anybody can walk in there. And we can, we can all walk in there. And I don't think we ever stop having those experiences, but I think that we can bring awareness to it so we don't live there. We don't live there. And what happens for us is that we, do, we go into the darkness and we grow the awareness and we grow the, the strength, the spiritual maturity and the strength to move forward. And this is how this works. This is how the infinite works in our lives. This is a, the Hanukkah season for the Jewish faith. And part of the story behind the mythology, we have a mythology in our own Western tradition and a Christian tradition. And a lot of what's written about the birth of the Christ at, on the 25th, they know now that you know, they go back and, they, and, and the people that like to draw a straight line realize that December 25th was not Jesus of Nazareth's birthday. Uh, and there are many things, but because it lines up with a lot of the mythology and a lot of the customs and rituals from antiquity, the 25th is interesting because it's very close to the sol- solstice. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of theories around it. So I'm not saying that all of it's mythology, but there's a lot of mythology that surrounds it because it supports this idea of light. In the Jewish tradition, it's the, uh, it's the um, uh, Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is a celebration. What happened for the Jews was... They were kicked out of their temple. The Egyptians took power and said, you guys are done with the temple, we're taking it over. You guys can't even come in here anymore. Which would be an example of that would be that if, if a new government, the government election and the, the powers that be came in and said, you guys can't meet anymore. This is no longer yours, this is ours. And so I don't think any of us would like that, but that's, prob- that's exactly what happened. And so the Maccabees got together and they, and they, they fought these guys and they took back the temple. So what happened was the Jews were thrown into darkness. They lost their place. They lost their sacred space, which is a metaphor, if we were to interpret it with, I think, with the greatest value. It's when we lose our, when we lose our sacred space within ourselves and we fall into the hatred or the envy or the anger. And we stay there. So I'm not saying to go there is a bad thing. It's to stay stuck there that can be a problem. And so the Maccabees came in and they took back the temple. So the candles represent lighting a light. There's eight of them. There's eight menorah lights. When we do our candle lighting on Christmas Eve, um, I'm putting together some ideas around how we approach that differently this year. But the first candle that I want to talk about is that what we all need to honor in our lives, I believe, is the darkness. The darkness is important because without the darkness, we don't grow the skills and the capacities and what, what is asked of us, we're all asked to, sh- we are, the teacher Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And in order to shine that light, most effectively, we have to understand what's in it for us in the darkness. And to be able to walk through it and to, to discern and to, and to shift our perceptions so that we can be in the world and together in a different way. And so many of us have got disappointments in our lives. 
But we've brought those things into our experiences so that we can develop that type of staying power, that type of, of stamina and awareness and wisdom and clarity. And that's how it works. This is a story about the, the, these daemons, and the daemons were upset because people weren't stepping into it, and they weren't, their, their caves were empty. And so Santa Claus was the reason. And Santa Claus represents that vibration of the Most High, the generosity of spirit. And he wasn't buying into any of the conversations, but unless we've gone into the light and we've participated in it a bit, we don't understand the language. And then, and then to develop the consciousness and the awareness and the perception to move us out of it, so that when it is, you know, so what Santa Claus represents is that pristine experience in this story of knowing who I am and whose I am. And to not be discouraged by those, those lower, uh, the Hindus call these, these uh, um, qualities our lower nature. They call them the nafs. And the Hindus understand this. The great traditions of the world understand the lower nature. So it's living and, and lifting ourselves up and having the awareness to move forward when we, when we forget. Because it's easy to forget. And that's, to me, that's what this season is about. That's what we're doing here. There's a wonderful book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Outliers. And the outliers are, are groups and people that are, are outside the norm. And I talked about it last week, about being normal. I don't want to be normal. Anybody here want to be normal? Because you look out and read the paper, you see what normal looks like. I don't want to do normal. I want to continue to question the status quo of my own being, my own inner life, and, and, and asking myself, is all of this can do? Is this, is this something that I stand for? And if not, it's not about burning it down. You know, Santa Claus didn't say, I'm going to destroy hatred. And he just went, I want to go home. I want to go back to my home where I can thrive, where I'm in the Laughing Valley, where I'm in a continuous uh, connection with joy and celebration. It wasn't about him taking the army that was coming to save him and going back and destroying them. Because then all of a sudden, he steps into the consciousness that was keeping him captive. He understands, no, not for me. Thanks. No, no, no. Thank you so much. Not going there. But in Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, there's a story in here about um, the uh, village of Risotto. Or, uh, sorry, it's not Risotto, it's an Italian name. <laughs> Rosetto. Okay, I was close. Rosetto. And so I, uh, I know it well enough now to just tell it to you. So Rosetto is in Pennsylvania, and all the people that came, there's a small village in Italy where t 11 of them, a boy and 10 men, went to New York City. They stayed overnight on Mulberry Street. I was just on Mulberry Street last month. It's in uh, Little Italy. And we, they went to Pennsylvania, and they, and they found this little village. And it was right next to Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and Barreto. And, and Nazareth is, uh, is inhabited by the, um, the Germans, and Barreto was in, inhabited by the English. And so these folks were from Italy. And so what happened, because of the time and the wars that were going on, they all remained isolated. But over time, Rosetto became, and they tried to turn it into little, they wanted to call it New Italy because everybody was from the village. And then they realized, no, this is really our village. And they all spoke the same language. They all spoke the same Italian dialect, the southern Italian dialect, because that's where they, they all knew each other. And so they, they, they got there and they started building a, a community. And the community is still there. A young priest showed up in 1896 and he got them all organized and started doing all kinds of programs together. He encouraged the town folk to clear the land. They were, and and this, this village is on hillsides. It's not really, um, you know, it's not prime real estate. It's all tiered and they all built their little stone houses with their white t uh, red tile roofs. But Father Pasquale de Nisco took over the Our Lady of Mount Carmel. So they built a church, they built a convent there, they built a hospital there. 
Danisco set up a spiritual, spiritual societies and organized festivals. He encouraged the town folk to clear the land and plant onions, beans, potatoes, melons, and fruit trees in the long backyards behind their houses. He gave out seeds and bulbs. He wanted everybody to get growing stuff. They started raising pigs, and they started creating their own agriculture in their backyards. They started growing grapes for homemade wine. Schools, parks, convents, cemeteries, small shops, bakeries. <clears throat> in their main street is Garibaldi Street, which is the, the great hero of the Italian unification. So a bunch of factories opened up, and they were thriving. Then all of a sudden, Stuart Wolf showed up, and Wolf was a physician. And, 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 they, and they, they couldn't figure out, as everybody seemed in Rosetto seemed to die of old age. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. So they, he talked to a guy. He had a beer with another local physician, and, and the, the doctor said, I've been practicing for 17 years. I get patients from all over, and I rarely find anyone from Rosetto under the age of 65 with heart disease. It's rare way off the charts in terms of the averages. So they started looking at it. And they started doing studies, and people showed up. And so uh, Stuart Wolf brought in, he taught at the University of Oklahoma, he brought in a bunch of students, and they started doing research. And then the, the local doctor decided that he was going to bring his sisters in. He had four sisters, and they started looking at all the statistics. They said, let's figure out what's going on in this town. So they first they thought it must have something to do with diet. And then they looked at it, and they said the Rosettans were cooking everything with lard instead of the healthier olive oil. Pizza in Italy was a thin crust with salt, oil, and perhaps some tomato, anchovy, or onions. Pizza in Pennsylvania was bread dough plus sausage, pepperoni, salami, ham, and sometimes eggs. Sweets such as biscotti and tarali used for the res was reserved for Christmas and Easter back in Italy. In Rosetto, they eat it all year round. When Wolf had dietitians analyze the typical Rosettan eating habits, they found that a whopping 41% of their calories came from fat. Nor was this town where people got up at dawn to do yoga and run a brisk six miles. They didn't do that. In fact, the Pennsylvania Rosettans smoked heavily and many were struggling with obesity. So it wasn't a diet. If diet and exercise didn't explain the findings, then what about genetics? They looked closely at close-knit groups from the same region of Italy and Wolf. Dr. Wolf's next thought was to wonder whether they were of a particular hardy stock that protected them from disease. So he tracked down relatives of the Rosettans who were living in other parts of the United States to see if they shared the same remarkable good health as their cousins in Pennsylvania, and they did not. So it wasn't genetics. So then they said, well, it's got to be the geography where they live. And they, so they looked at the closest towns, Bangor and Nazareth, a few miles away, both of the same size, populated with the same kind of hard-working Im European immigrants, but their men over 65, the death rates from heart disease in Nazareth and Bangor were three times out of Rosetto. It wasn't geography. What they began to realize that the secret of Rosetta wasn't diet or exercise or genes or location. It had to be Rosetta itself. As Dr. Bruin and Wolf walked around the town, they figured out why. They looked at how the Rosettians visited each other, stopping to chat in Italian on the street, say or cooking for one another in their backyards, they learned about the extended family clans that underline the, the town's social structure. They saw how many homes had three generations living under one roof and how much respect grandparents commanded. They went to Mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and saw the unifying and calming effect of the church. They counted 22 separate civic organizations in a town of just under 2,000 people. They picked up on the particular egalitarian ethos of the community which discouraged the wealthy from flaunting their success and helped the unsuccessful obscure their failures. 
In transplanting the Paisani culture of southern Italy to the hills of eastern Pennsylvania, the Rosettans had created a powerful, protective social structure capable of insulating them from the pressures of the modern world. The Rosettans were healthy because of where they were from, because, <clears throat> because of the world they had created for themselves in their tiny little town in the hills. So then these guys went back to the doctors with their research. And the doctor said, ah, you're nuts. You know, we need to measure this. We've got to be able to measure this. And what, it, what they did is they started the conversation. They had to look beyond the individual. They had to understand the culture he or she was part of and who their friends and family were and what town their families came from. They had to appreciate the idea, and this is the most important piece of this. This is truly the answer, that the values of the world we inhabit and the people we surround ourselves with have a profound effect on who we are. It's community. What, what added to their longevity and thriving, I'm not saying, you know, start eating 41% fat. I'm not recommending that. Because there, there is this, there's a quality of life. And if you want to do that, I'm, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. But I'm just saying that, but it really is about community. It's about the people that we surround ourselves with. It's about the ideas that we invite into our own experience, our own consciousness. And we can choose that. We can choose that. We can look out at the world and, 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 and we can extract the problems and the difficulties and the things that are incongruent and, and on all the problems and we can pour our energy into that. Or we can simply know that's part of the story but it's not all of the story. And to be able to put the things down that are alive in us that, that connect with that so that we can give birth to something different in our experience. I was reading Steve Martin's uh, memoirs the last couple of days, his short little book. I bought it months ago, and then I found it when I was looking for stuff. And, and in it, he talks about why he... he, he Steve Martin, a comedian. And then he, he stopped doing stand-up comedy, and he started writing books and films and things like that. And he talked about what motivated him was his father, his relationship with his dad. And, he, and, and he, so the last 15 years of Steve Martin's life, his dad was a realtor and never appreciated or supported anything he did. Even when he became very successful, his dad just thought it was the dumbest thing ever. And so what it did is it motivated Steve Martin to continue to, and he did it to his 10,000 hours. I mean, he was in small clubs and small clubs. He was doing a, uh, he was doing a club one time and <laughs> nobody showed up. So he, he told them after the second night that, you know, I'll just save your money, I'm out of here. But it's really a compelling story. But he was motivated by his relationship or longing for a relationship with his dad. And so the last 15 years of his life in relationship with his father, he knew he wanted to reconcile that. He wanted to find a common ground and a place where they could connect. And when his father was getting ready to die, um, he, kept, he kept close to him, and he kept working the relationship in a way that, that, he, that would continue to pull him together. And he, his father finally started to lighten up towards the end. And on his deathbed, he said, I wish I could cry. He looked at Steve Martin and said, I wish I could cry. And he said, why do you wish you could cry? He said, for all the love that I've received all my life that I have been unable to return. And, 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 then, and then his mother, his, his mother, uh, she, as she was getting older, um, he would, and he was very close to her, and he set up a, she could go down to Neiman Marcus and go shopping. She loved to do that, and he always got great joy out of that. And, um, his mother one day was talking to him and, they, and he was always very loving and they were going back and forth about this and finally she looked up at him and said, and how's your mom? I mean, she, had, she had no idea that, you know, is that she was starting to go into the dementia. 
Um, she said to him also, uh, have I ever had a miscarriage? He says, no, mom, you never had a miscarriage. Oh, good, knock on wood. You know, <laughs> 90 years old. But his, but his relationship with his father, uh, towards the end, he finally said to his dad, his dad said to him, I love you. And, and he said, I love you back. And they finally, they finally bridged that gap. And he said his whole life was really about the things he did was about that relationship and his longing for it. And I just think it's such a compelling, interesting uh, dynamic. And so if we have those things alive in our lives, why do we wait till we're on the deathbed? Why do we wait till the very end to be able to express that and to be able to say, you know, I wish I could cry for all the love that I've received and have not been able to return. And those are the gifts of the season. Those are the gifts of awareness that life is just life, you know. Here's Jill that comes all the way back from Ottawa. I told her, you know, they have planes that fly almost every day from Edmonton to Ottawa so we can, we can invite her back into our community. But it really is, so this community, you know, I, I am so grateful. So I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, I'm so grateful for the love that I have received, my family's received in this community and the, the love that we've been able to share and extend with one another. And a lot of it's not verbal. You know, there, there may be months that go by where we don't connect, but we are connected because it's part of the community. We are a family of light. We do st- challenge the status quo. And what's real in our lives right now is real. And if we're in the darkness, it's just temporary. And we can move back into the light. We can light the candles of our own consciousness. We can say, you know what, I'm ready to step in, up in the world in a different way right here and right now. And that's what this transition is. That's what this season of light represents for us. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it throughout the life of Jesus. We see it through the, the Jewish tradition, the Hindu tradition. And all of the traditions have this, this idea around light. It is giving birth to that light. And to being able to say to one another and be in community and surround ourselves with the ideas and the people that allow us to thrive and continue to give our gifts. That's a wonderful gift. So I thank you for all the gifts that you've shared in my experience. I'm grateful for this teaching. I'm grateful for this tradition. I'm grateful for all, all of the love that's shown up. I'm grateful for for continuing to be able to do the work along with you that allows that greater expression and revelation of light and truth in this season of light. And so it is.